0: Good day, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Intangible Investor Podcast, brought to you by Knowledge Leaders Capital, where we discuss everything under the sun related to financial markets, economics, and innovation. This episode was recorded on January 9th, 2020. I'm Bryce Coward, Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for Knowledge Leaders Capital, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Stephen Vanelli, the Chief Investment Officer and Chief Executive Officer of Knowledge Leaders Capital. Welcome everyone to the podcast and welcome back from the holiday season. We hope everyone had a a nice uh, relaxing and safe holiday season. Well, after the holiday break, I thought it'd be uh, a good idea to get back to basics and talk a little bit about innovation investment in the United States. But before that, Steve has some thoughts uh, he'd like to share about national savings in, uh, in the United States. Steve, what have you been looking at related to economy wide savings?
1: Well, Bryce, um, as you know, the flow of funds put out by the Federal Reserve comes out on a quarterly basis. Uh, the most recent just came out on December the 12th, 2019. And for those that may be unfamiliar with the flow of funds, it's um, about the most complete compendium of economic activity in the United States that that, that exists. It's Roughly 125 pages of tables of numbers and small fonts, uh, outlining um, all the various sectors of the economy: the household, the business, the uh, 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 non-non business sectors. And so, one of the uh, tables uh, earlier on in the flow of funds is a summary table. It's a savings and investment summary table, table F4. And what it does is it uh, uh, aggregates the um, aggregate savings of the the three primary sectors of the economy: the household, the government, and, and the business sectors. And and in looking through that, um, uh, we can then total it up and, and arrive at a uh, net savings as a percent of GDP, uh, which is a way of understanding um, again our, our our savings trends in the United States. And of course, because investment is 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 linked via Uh, via identity, savings equals investment. Um, uh, If you want to have an idea of where investment in in the economy is going, uh, having a good idea of what savings trends are is a a great place to start. So with that, um, we'll start with the household sector. Household sector uh, in the most recent report uh, uh, is recorded as having savings uh, on a flow basis. Uh, of about 6% of GDP, 6.05% of GDP positive. Now that is um, down from uh, an 8% savings rate uh, in 2012 uh, when, the, when the consumer was likely still pretty, uh, pretty, pretty scared after the Great Recession. Um, but it's also interestingly um, up uh, about one full percentage point uh, since, the last, uh, since the last election from, from about 5% to, to about 6%. So then looking at the business sector, uh, the business sector uh, current uh, net savings as a percent of GDP are about 2.52%. Um, they peaked at about 5.5% in 2010 and have shrunk since. Um, of course, that's interesting in light of the, uh, the the relatively strong profit margins that the companies have posted the last few years. And I th- think the easy answer there is that... Um, uh, in, instead of retaining earnings, which would count as business savings, companies paid out uh, those, quote unquote, retained earnings uh, in the form of stock buybacks. Uh, and so then we have the, the government sector. Uh, and the government uh, sector is the largest dissaver in the economy, uh, running a deficit as a percent of GDP uh, of roughly 6.68%. Um, that deficit was as low as, or sorry, as large as 12% of GDP uh, in 2009, in the aftermath of the, uh, of the Great Financial Crisis, and, and it got to as small as negative 4% in 2015. So, uh, it, it's opened up by by you know by a pretty good margin in the last few years, and that dis savings by the government sector has served to overwhelm uh, positive saving trends uh, among the household and corporate sector, such that when we aggregate the three sectors, um, aggregate net national savings peaked at about 5% in 2005, uh, and is now uh, down to 1.89%. So it's fallen by about 3% um, over uh, over the last four or five years. Uh, And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, savings is important to look at in in terms of understanding investment trends. And so um, when we see last year that non-residential fixed investment as a percent of GDP fell uh, by about half a percent to about 13.36%, it's not surprising in light of the, you know, now multi-year deterioration in, uh, in net savings. There simply isn't the, simply isn't the organic savings generated in the United States in order to fuel uh, a large uh, expansion of a, of a capital stock. And so if we take that one step further, we can look at you know, gross investment uh, and then subtract out depreciation in order to have an understanding for what net investment uh, uh, is among the, private, among the private sector. And so net investment currently is uh, just under 4%, 3.97%. Um, and this cycle net investment has averaged about 3% uh, of GDP fairly in line with, uh, with, with savings trends. Um, but again, it's not surprising that in two, uh, 2015, when net savings peaked, net investment peaked around five percent, and as savings, uh, net savings, have fallen off. Net investment has fallen off by around one percent of GDP as well. So certainly, that has you know implications for economic growth as we look into 2020. Uh, for those thinking that uh, economic growth this year uh, uh, will likely be uh, you know helped significantly by uh, by corporate investment uh, to the extent corporate savings. Uh, to the extent aggregate savings, excuse me, continue to uh, decline, um, that, that seems like a less and less likely proposition. Um, and then from an investment standpoint, uh, which of course is where the rubber meets the road for, for, for our listeners, there's three, uh, three you know, asset allocation consequences I would point out to, to trends in, in net national savings. Uh, the first of them is uh, the, uh, the US dollar, and uh, net national savings, if we look back over the last 30 years, um, ebbs and flows in net national savings tend to coincide with a two-year lead with ebbs and flows, rises and drops in, in the U.S. dollar. And so um, while the U.S. dollar made a high uh, in uh, several years ago uh, with a two-year lag with net savings, um, as we see net savings continue on a glide path down, uh, it, uh, it it raises the, the specter of whether or not uh, we may be finally seeing um, a peak in the U.S. dollar and and the dollar, uh, uh, you know, put in a put in a decisive top. And I'll, I'll say uh, uh, with that, um, on December 30th, we got a golden cross in the U.S. dollar index, which is a technical configuration where the 50-day moving average falls down through the 200 day moving average. So definitely something we'll be uh, keeping our eyes on, given the significance of of currencies to to the investment landscape. The second item that that I would throw in there that's related to net savings trends is the relative performance of stocks versus bonds. And when uh, net savings are rising, generally earlier on an economic cycle, stocks tend to outperform bonds. Um, As net savings peak and begin to decline, generally stocks underperform bonds. So for example, net savings peaked in 99, stock market uh, relative performance of stocks versus bonds peaked in in 2000. Uh, Net savings peaked at the end of of 06, Uh, the relative performance of stocks versus bonds peaked at the end of of 07. Um, Here we've been following the script uh, relatively closely. except since 2016. Uh, for the last you know, three years, we've had this divergence where um, the relative performance of stocks versus bonds has increased by about 60%, while net savings have, uh, again, t- continued to drop away. So um, if, if history is any guide, um, uh, certainly that would suggest some, uh, some caution may be warranted uh, when looking at that stock versus bond allocation. And then the last one that I would throw in there um, is the strong relationship through time, um, inverse relationship through time between net national savings and gold prices. And when net national savings are rising, that's usually a backdrop of gold falling uh, and and vice versa. When net national savings are falling uh, as they are right now, it tends to be an environment where, where gold uh, where gold outperforms and has the wind in its back, similar to the U.S. dollar, um, our models, um, you know, identify a, a two-year uh, uh, lead for net national savings as as the best kind of timing barometer. So, um, I think as long as we continue to see environment of falling U.S. Uh, net national savings, uh, uh, gold probably has uh, the wind in its back. So, with with that uh, minutia. Bryce, um, I know you've been doing some work on intangible investment uh, at the sub-industry level. Um, would you like to share with our listeners uh, your findings?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Steve. And I and I think it it actually ties in quite well with what um, <clears throat> with what you were just describing of um, really uh, um, a dearth of savings impeding investment at the economy-wide level, um, and uh, the the one area where we see Um, maybe a contrast to that is investment in intellectual property products. So here we're talking about scientific and non-scientific R&D, employee training, advertising, um, investments that companies make in in databases or or logistics systems, uh, in-house developed software, things like that. Um, And so it probably comes as no surprise um, to, to most folks that that category of investment is actually growing at a, at a very rapid clip right now. Um, but when we look at um, when we look at intellectual property product investment as a percent of total business investment, um, I think folks will will be surprised that over the last I'll call it 40 years or so since since 1980, um, intellectual property products investment as a percent of total business investment has risen from about 13% to about 36%, um, while at the same time investment in fi- fixed assets, this is uh, uh, property and equipment, uh, so those, those traditional uh, fixed capital um, uh, things that folks think about, uh, ha- has fallen commensurately from uh, from 87% of the total, just down to about 64% of the total. So we, we've seen a, a kind of a flip-flop there in the kinds of things that companies are investing in. And from an accounting perspective, this raises um, a bit of a problem because when we look at GAAP accounting statements, um, what, we, uh, uh, what what companies are required to do is actually expense any investments they make in intellectual property. So again, those are R&D, employee training, advertising, things things of that nature. So whereas a company uh, could invest $1,000 in a piece of machinery, um, uh, the accounting treatment for that would be to place, uh, for example, $990 on uh, on the balance sheet as an asset, and then take just a portion of that through their income statement as a depreciation expense. Um, in contrast, when a company invests in R&D, um, the same thousand dollars, they'd put uh, all thousand dollars of that expense on their income statement. And so it would reduce earnings by a commensurate, uh, commensurate amount. So that makes um, the assets of highly innovative companies, companies that are investing a lot of their capital in these intangible type of investments, uh, which again is gaining share relative to investment in, in fixed PP and e um, it makes their assets look relatively low compared to other companies, and it makes their earnings look relatively low um, and so what i 've done today is put together some some numbers on that, that that may be actually pretty surprising to to our listeners and um, i 've aggregated the asset levels of a couple of a couple of sub industries out there and uh, compared what their actual reported assets are and then what their assets would be um, if we take into account all of the intangible investments they make and, and treating those assets um, uh, treating those investments the same way we treat investments um, in physical property plant, and equipment and there's um, uh, a spoiler alert here and this is um, actually the, the exact thing we do in our process when we're looking at, at companies. And the reason we do it is because we just think it, it gives us a, a more clear lens into the economic reality of these businesses. So um, I've just got a couple examples. And uh, the first one here is uh, the sub-industry called Human Resources and Employment Services. And there's actually only one company in the sub-industry. It's Robert Half, it's a, a staffing agency and their uh their reported assets on their balance sheet are uh one point nine billion dollars, but when we take into account all of the investments they make um, particularly uh, uh in this company um, with regard to employee training, um, we count assets uh of of two point nine billion so that's a, that's a, a billion dollars that um, are productive assets that normal investors do not see on this company's balance sheet. That's a difference of about 52%. Um, so another, another uh, group of companies I'll hit on here is computer and electronics retail businesses. So total assets in that sub-industry uh, sum up to about $18.6 billion on a reported basis, when we look at those assets um, using our methodology, so counting all of those intangible investments, the assets for that sub-industry actually um, move up to $25.4 billion, so that's a difference of 36%. Um, there's a couple of names in this industry that that folks are probably pretty familiar with. Best Buy uh, being one, GameStop being another, and, uh, and again this is due to improvements in uh, or investments these companies are making in employee training for one, um, logistics for another. I can tell you that I was in a Best Buy just the other week. And, and man, I'm, I'm very impressed by the, by the improvement they've made in terms of customer service, uh, having all the inventory they need to on the shelf when they need it. And it's actually, in some respects, more convenient just to go to Best Buy than it is to order something on Amazon if you need it uh, quickly. Um, Another sub-industry I'll hit on is food retail, and um, in this space, reported assets are $3.2 billion, and adjusted assets, as we count them, are $4.4 billion, so that's a difference of 36%. Uh, Sprouts Market is is one company in this group that folks might be familiar with. And again, uh, it's a company that has terrific customer service, they've got, uh, they've got their shelf stock with everything that they need, and uh, it's a very efficient business again. Um, again alluding to those investments, those intangible investments that this company is making in things like um, staffing, employee training, and, and logistics. Um, and then a final industry that I'll hit on is the personal products group. Um, so a couple of companies in this group might be uh, Estee Lauder and Avon Products, uh, companies that folks are familiar with. So Um, Reported assets in this uh, sub-industry are $41.7 billion and and adjusted assets, uh, taking into account all those intangible investments, are $55.8 billion. So that's a difference of about 34%, Um, again, a a very large difference. Now here, uh, the investments these companies are making aren't so much in the employee training space. But um, more in the non-scientific R&D space, so testing chemical compounds and 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 uh, testing how those compounds, um, uh, uh, testing how those how they're able to put those different compounds together in order to make a consumer product. In this case, um, in this case, makeup or lotions, things of that nature. Now, uh, listeners will probably notice that I didn't talk about any um, any tech companies. Now, of course, there are tech companies that, that spend a great deal on, on intangible investments. Names that come to mind would be Amazon, Google, Microsoft, eBay, Expedia, uh, you know, names that, that folks are familiar with. But um, but actually, what we see is it's, um, investment in intangibles is much more broad-based than just in the tech sector. And, and in fact, um, some of the sub-industries that I talked about are actually the, the most, um, uh, robust investors and intangible investments um, out there, so I just thought i'd 'd point out that interesting fact
1: bryce when i when i hear uh, hear about hidden assets, I think about uh, a market inefficiency that 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 may exist is it, is that is that is that your train of thought as you as you analyze these these industries
0: well i think that 's exactly right, Steve because you know what happens is that most investors out there are looking at assets as companies report them. And so if, if a company has a productive capital stock that um, in reality is much larger than what you might find on a, on a balance sheet, then, well, the earnings potential of that company is actually gonna be uh, quite, a, quite a bit larger than, than you might expect. And so this causes companies that are highly innovative, that have this accounting deficiency, um, uh, if you will, uh, for these companies, you know, analysts have a very difficult time uh, gauging the earnings potential. And so what often happens is that earnings expectations um, are set at one spot. And then these companies just generally over time tend to beat those expectations time, in, uh, time and again. And so uh, related to a market inefficiency, that's exactly what I think it is. And um, we're, we're seeing it play out um, really in real time.
1: It sounds like there is a gap between reality and what is reported, pun intended. (laughs) Good one, Steve.
0: Well, with that, we'll conclude today's podcast. Thank you all for listening to The Intangible Investor. And please come visit us at www.knowledgeleaderscapital.com to learn about our products and our unique way of investing in global financial markets. Please also send us your comments and feedback by emailing us at info at klcapital.com. Until next time, this is Bryce Coward and Stephen Vanelli signing off.